Hello, readers. Nicholson Baker is the award-winning author of 10 novels and numerous works of nonfiction. That includes his newest book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. Nick, thank you for the time. This 10-year project started out as a single question. What was it, and how did it evolve into what fills the pages of Baseless? It started as a question of what actually happened a long time ago. Did the United States use weird science germ weapons in the Korean War? That was the basic question. And it evolved into a whole lot of questions that were related, which are, why does the government keep secrets? And why is it so hard to get old documents out of hiding places? And what does it mean to try to write history when you don't actually have everything available that you know exists somewhere? What is it like to write history when you are waiting for things to be declassified. And much of what you are trying to track down in terms of classified information, classified documents, oftentimes from close to 70, if not over 70 years ago, has to do with the Freedom of Information Act. Now, I and plenty of other people know what that is, but for those who are maybe a little bit ignorant to that process, what exactly is the Freedom of Information Act? It's this really nifty idea that a congressman had in the middle of the 1950s. He was upset that a lot of things were happening in foreign policy around the world and even at home that the people of the United States didn't know about because it was considered secret. So he came up with this idea that freedom of speech is a meaningless concept if you don't know what your own government is actually doing. That freedom of information is somehow connected to freedom of speech. And he started to have some hearings in Washington on the idea of coming up with some sort of law that would compel government agencies to release records about what they were doing. And it took him 10 years to get this law passed, and it was finally signed into law by President Johnson in 1965. And Johnson did not want to sign it into law, but it kind of had to happen politically. And it had a sort of golden age in the 70s when it forced a lot of revelations. You know, a lot of amazing stuff came out. And then in the Reagan era, the rules were changed and a lot of things were then again shielded from further scrutiny. And so we've limped along since then with this law that is on the books very powerful. It's the law that says that you can ask the government to see something that you want to learn about and they have to respond within 20 days. But in fact, sometimes they don't respond for five years. They're people who've been waiting for responses for 10 years. It's not a law that is enforced. And so it's a very strange feeling to ask for things under a law that's been passed and have no recourse, but to just sort of send off further letters saying, I'm waiting. You know, I'd like to know what you're doing with this document that you're withholding. So that's what the law is, and that's what it's doing and what it's not doing. 
And so for the past 20 or so years, what has that process been like for you? I know you just touched on it right there, but what is the starting point and I guess what is the end point of actually getting something in return from our government? Well, my very first Freedom of Information Act was a huge success, and I asked for records relating to this guy who worked at the Library of Congress, an obscure person. I asked the CIA for all records relating to this guy named Werner Klapp. And it was amazing. About a month later, a whole envelope came with a seal on it, and it was filled with stuff, and it was great. And I thought, wow, this is really quite a lot. You know, and it was great. But then I asked for other documents. I guess this was around 2003. I asked for some documents relating to a secret program at the Library of Congress that did bomb targeting. They figured out where to bomb in the Soviet Union and China. And they were working at the Library of Congress. They were officially Library of Congress employees. And so I wanted to tell the story of that. So I asked for a particular document that they produced. And I think it was three years later the document finally appeared in the mailbox, even though it had been declassified. So years went by, and I got interested in this question of what happened. The Korean War is a terribly important moment because it was Harry Truman's war, and he decided that he would send in airplanes and troops without asking Congress whether that was a good idea or not, without getting their permission. So it was an undeclared war. He called it a police action. And as a result of this, lots of things sort of sprung into motion. And one of them was that the government's chemical and biological warfare research program, weapons development program, was hugely accelerated. And the the budget was tripled. So the story was what actually did happen And what can I find out about what happened, given that some of the important documents are still held back? So I then filed a bunch of Freedom of Information Act requests to the National Archives for these memos, interesting memos that were sent around 1950, 1951, about the Biological Warfare Program. And I said, you know, I'd like to see them. I knew that the memos existed because they'd been replaced by yellow cardboard inserts that said document removed or access restricted or something. So I knew that these particular memos existed. I knew who had written them and who had received them, but not what they said. And they were held in a special part of the National Archives building in College Park called a SCIF, a Sensitive Compartmented information facility, I guess that's the acronym. So it was so strange. I would look at the documents I could look at, but I knew that several hundred yards away from me, year after year, were documents that I couldn't look at and that I was waiting for. So it was a kind of a strange situation to sit there knowing that answers to your questions are a matter of just walking down a hall and going into a different place, but you'll never go there. You're not allowed there because you don't have a security clearance. One document you asked to see from seven years ago is a memo sent on August 15th, 1951 from someone named Wilson to another person named Grover. Who are those two people? What are the range of possibilities contained in this doc? And how reflective 
is this of the uncertainty of so many different classified papers? Well, that's a very good question. The first part of it is that what you have to do when you start to learn about any period of history is you have to go through and look at what's on paper, what's actually there, and you have to start to learn the personalities, and you get familiar with it. It sometimes takes a little while. It took me years to get familiar with all the names. And Wilson is Roscoe Wilson, who was a guy who was in charge of a small group of Air Force people who were working on how to accelerate the chemical and biological warfare program. The other guy, Grover, was a really interesting person who worked in a very secret kind of a little side place in the Pentagon as an Air Force employee. But I think the program was fundamentally paid for by the CIA, but it was called the Psychological Warfare Division. But that was sort of a cover name because it was actually the Psychological and Biological Warfare Division. And he was very interested in this thing called the Feather Bomb, which was going to be the way that the United States won the coming gigantic total war with Russia. So this Feather Bomb was going to be dropped on the Soviet farms on all the wheat and rye crops, all the crops that could possibly be dropped on it, and it would infect these crops with this fungus called stem rust and destroy the crops, and therefore Russia would be starved into a state of surrender. So that was the strategy. The feather bomb was the way that the United States would prevail, because there was a terrible fear in the Pentagon that there was no way to win a war with Russia by boots on the ground because the Russian army was just so much bigger than the American army. The American army plus the Western European army was still going to be defeated by the Russian army. So other things had to be invoked and they were very worried that this war was coming. So worried that they wanted to use any means, any means underhanded, any kind of crazy nerve gas, anything to win this war. And that's what led to this problem. So this particular memo was sent just around the time that the Korean War started. And the Korean War was, you know, obviously not in Russia, but everyone in the Pentagon felt that it was a, a Russian plan. It was part of the Russian plan for world domination. And therefore, that it upped the ante and that this huge war was much more likely to be coming. And they had a date. The first it was 1953, then it, they revised the date to 1954, but they wanted to be ready for this apocalyptic war with every weapon they could possibly have. So somehow this letter is involved in some aspect of this. We know it's about biological weapons because of the code number. It says 471.6 on the yellow sheet that says document removed. So I know it's about biological warfare. I know the two guys that are corresponding, and they're both interested in biological weapons. And it's right around the time when the Korean War is happening. But I don't know what they're saying. You know, I mean, I, there are many other documents that are declassified that are about all kinds of really amazingly weird weapons that the Air Force and the Army were cooking up. So it's not as if the weapons are secret. 
It's the plan on where to use the weapons. That's the thing that's being held back. It's still, I think, being held back that they were actively discussing what to do in the event of a war with Russia and what to do in Asia. Who was Frank Wisner? Frank Wisner is a fascinating character. No biography of him exists, but there are biographical studies of him in other books. He's the guy who sort of came up with the dark side of the CIA. The CIA is really basically has a bicameral brain. It has one side of the CIA is people coming up with learned research reports about foreign countries and what might happen if such and such a leader is elected and what would be the consequences if somebody else was deposed and all that sort of thing. And that's the CIA that is talked about when they talk about intelligence. But actually, presidents don't read those. Certainly Trump doesn't read those reports, right? The CIA is also about covert action. And it was almost from the beginning that that happened. And it was the result of the idea that George Kennan had was that we had to do the dark things that Stalin did and that Churchill had taught the world to do. We had to use secret, covert action that was not connected to the U.S. government, that pretended to be independent. We had to fund indigenous rebel groups and give them weapons and figure out what would be the right way to get what the United States wanted. And the man that he chose to do all of these sneaky things was Frank Wisner, who was a lawyer. He was quite a successful lawyer in New York, and he was also just sort of a party guy. He liked to give cocktail parties, and he became friendly with all these journalists in Washington. And he'd have them over for drinks and to columnists and tell them that, you know, something was going to happen in Guatemala. We were doing stuff and interesting things were happening on the border of China. And he'd drop hints, everything off the record. But he was doing things all over the world. And the unfortunate thing for <laughs> the history of the human race is he was totally nuts. He was completely manic depressive. And when he was manic, things just went off the rails. And he did things, assassinational things, and things involving plans for economic warfare and crop destruction and every god-awful thing you can think of would just sort of come reeling out of his brain. And he also was given a complete carte blanche. So he grew this little core group of, you know, a handful of people suddenly became a 1,000 or 2,000 people all over the world. So he's the guy who created covert, clandestine, dirty tricks action. What was the importance of a memo between Wisner and Marshall Chadwell, who was the head of the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, around June 20th, 1950? Chad Chadwell had worked on all kinds of spy weapons during World War II as part of the OSS. And he was head of the CIA's Scientific Bureau. And he was a fairly new import. And Wisner, this was in 50s, so Wisner had been working at the CIA slash State Department group called the Office of Policy Coordination. He'd been working there for two years, 
And there was a war on. It was a Korean War. Suddenly, people were dying. And he wrote a memo saying that in order for the CIA to carry out its mission, the Office of Policy of Coordination needs to do certain things and have certain knowledge and competency in these new fields of unconventional warfare. And he listed them, radiological, biological, and chemical warfare. So what he wanted to do was to find out all of the things that you could do with chemical weapons, germ weapons, and radiological weapons that you could do not in a war zone in a mega way that's visible to everybody, but that you could do secretly so that people wouldn't know that it was happening using the CIA's assets. So the idea was to figure out how to adapt these new weapons to use them quietly but effectively on behalf of United States interests. The work of Edward Hagerman and Steve Endicott was an important resource to you in writing Baseless, especially their book, The United States and Biological Warfare, published on November 22, 1998, the 35th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Not sure if that was intended or not. If nothing else, it's an amusing side note. You actually met with both men beginning in 2008 when they shared and ultimately gave you a number of declassified documents What did these documents reveal about the U.S. government's opinion of the direction of the Korean War in late 1950 and early 1951? Wow. Well, first I want to say that the way that this book grew into being something that I was willing to devote my life to for a while is that I was working on this totally other book about libraries and microfilm, and I was in the University of New Hampshire library, and I had learned about some strange Cold War things that I didn't know about. And you know how when you, if you just learn something in the abstract, it doesn't stick. But if you have a particular path of research you're going down, it sort of pulls things into focus and makes you look at the whole history of that year that you're going down a whole different way. It sort of lights everything up. So anyway, there was on the wall, there was this book, and it said the United States and Biological Warfare, Secrets from the Early Cold War in Korea, and they had a little pink fly on the cover. It was sort of a lurid-looking cover, and I thought, what the hell? And I opened it up, and I'm looking at the things and thinking, this is really very, very much more specific and full of specific memos and dates and stuff than I knew anything about. And I looked at the list of diseases, diseases I had never really knew anything about, brucellosis, there was anthrax and all kinds of diseases that, you know, were just sort of known, but not something I'd ever studied. But there was one disease in this list. It was coccidioidomycosis. And I thought, oh my God, because my grandfather was a pathologist. And by then he had died, but he was a guy who taught people about human disease, and he was a specialist in fungal diseases. And when I was a teenager, I even helped him proofread some of his papers, and I watched him put these accounts together of people who died of terrible fungal diseases, and the pictures were just awful. It was just this horrible experience in some ways, because you're looking at the picture of somebody who knows that he or she is dying, and dying because a fungus is growing 
in this person's head. You know, it's just an unbelievable thing for a teenager to take in that my grandfather is studying this horrendous disease. But he was, and he taught that stuff. And, and so this disease, coccidioidal mycosis, this is a very long answer, but is a disease, it's called valley fever, and spores get in your lungs, and they go deep in your lungs, and they kind of fasten there, and you begin to bleed, and eventually, if it's not treated, it spreads to your brain, and you die. You know, it's a terrible disease. Okay, the U.S. government decided that this was a good, sneaky disease, because you would spread these spores, and they would go into people's lungs, and nobody would know where they came from. It's not something where you could say, oh, we saw that on the ground. No, it's just going to happen. And gradually people will be less and less able to do whatever work in the field that they were doing, harvesting, you know, whatever it was, especially in a dry climate. It's a disease that kills migrant workers still, or at least infects migrant workers in California even now. So I thought, this is so awful that the U.S. government is spending money to make this particular disease worse, to make it more infectious, and to figure out ways to put it in bombs, and that they were doing that for a number of years during the late World War II and the early Cold War, just troubled me. So I looked down the list, there's this disease, and the U.S. government is paying big money to make the disease worse. And I think, I've got to read this book. So I read the book and was very impressed by it because it had so many declassified documents in it and because it was making what was a cautious but very bold argument that there had been an opportunity and possibly an execution of a plan to use these weapons in a war zone. So I went up to Toronto where they lived and I talked to them a bunch of times and I got to know them and like them and... I was interested in their predicament because they had really worked hard in this historical monograph and they had gotten tons of stuff declassified, especially Ned Hagerman was just tireless and he kept using the Freedom of Information Act and he would go back and back and back and he was waiting for years for things. It was just kind of a heroic effort of disclosure and they had gotten terrible reviews, you know, they were sort of wounded men and I didn't understand that. And so I thought, well, I would like to, in some ways, see whether they were wrong or right. And also I was interested because Stephen Endicott himself had a kind of motive to be studying this. He'd grown up in China. His father was a missionary. And when the Korean War broke out and the North Koreans started to make these bizarre charges saying that the Americans are dropping insects on us and they're using this leaflet bomb that should be holding propaganda leaflets and instead it's packed with weird bugs that would never be flying around in the middle of winter. They're just swarms of bugs in the snow and they said all these crazy things and the Americans said, that's ridiculous. These are completely baseless charges. So when that happened, Stephen Endicott's father who was the founder of the uh, Canadian Peace Society, I think it was called, and was a famous figure, gave a talk in front of 8,000 people in Toronto saying, the Chinese are telling the truth. I went there, I saw, and I believe them. And 
So there was a whole political thing where he was going to be tried for treason and everything. So Stephen Endicott's motive was to sort of rescue his father's good name. My motive was to figure out what actually happened and see if these two guys whom I liked were right. And that's what led me down this path of doing my own research and also inheriting the boxes of declassified documents that they had used to write the book. Sadly, it was not surprising to learn about the smear campaign that happened against these men. And it was also sickening and disheartening to learn about some of the different methods that our government was plotting to use against countries that we consider to be enemies in the late 40s and early 1950s. There were multiple avenues that they were exploring in terms of making populations sick. Now, Dorothy Miller of the Air Force's historical office wrote a 100-page report on the Air Force participation in biological warfare from 1944 through 51. What was their rationale for biological weapons over then-traditional weapons of war? The rationale was that traditional warfare, and she wrote about this, involving high-explosive bombs and firebombs, traditional in the sense that World War II was traditional, uh, destroyed the enemy country. It destroyed cities. And so if you then conquer Japan, let's say, if you burn 60 cities in Japan and then you are in charge of running it, as they were in 1950 and onward, you're dealing with a semi-destroyed country, Bridges are down and buildings are ruined. So one of the attractions of biological weapons is that it killed people or made them sick, depending on what you wanted to do, but it didn't harm the city itself. The city was still standing. It's just that the people were sick. So that was one of it. The other idea was that biological weapons would be much cheaper than high explosive bombs or fire bombs because if you got some people sick, they might get other people sick. And so it had an effect of spreading. And that was especially true with the plan to destroy the Russian wheat crop. Actually, there was a lot of disagreement, and it's a very complicated thing because there are levels of radicalism with any weapon system. How destructive are you going to get? In World War II, the whole problem was, were we going to bomb armies or were we going to bomb cities and it turned out to be very difficult to bomb armies because it's nighttime and where is the army but you can however see certain river systems lighted by the moon and you can find a city so you just go for the center of the city because that's what you can find at night certain things are just possible or impossible in the case of germs they had to come up with a particular set of diseases that would do different things. One of their first earliest choices was this disease called brucellosis. And it was only fatal for something like 5% or even less, fewer than 5% of the people who got it died. It still made you very, very sick. And then there were other diseases. Q fever was a mysterious disease that had come up before World War II in Australia, and people got it in meatpacking plants, and cowboys got it, people who ate bandicoots got it. Anyway, it somehow was terribly interesting to the United States' 
germ experts, so they brought it to the United States, and they experimented with it. And then they got sick. So one of the things that's so interesting is to watch infections spread first, not in any enemy population, but in the scientists who are working to understand a particular disease. Lab leaks and lab disasters are sort of a part of the history of American science. Yeah, as a matter of fact, during your explanation of Q fever in the book, you reference a National Institute of Health scientist named Dr. Charles Armstrong. Armstrong kept investigating Q fever throughout the 1940s, and he kept getting people around him sick. In 1946, 22 NIH employees become ill, which prompted Armstrong to tell the Associated Press, quote, We started working on Q fever again a few weeks ago, and it got away from us again, just as it did before. Were you as floored by the flippant nature of his response as I was reading about this for the first time? That was one of those quotes that has stuck with me, and I think about it a lot. It got away from us. And there's a lot to that. So let's think about this guy. So he's a person, first of all, who's survived. He got sick from Q fever himself, so he's a survivor. He knows what the disease is like, not just as a scientist, but as someone who has suffered from it. And he is now, theoretically at least, immune. But he is saying he is drawn to this disease because it is so remarkably virulent and infectious. It's so easy to get Q fever. In fact, another scientist wandered into the brand new NIH building. So we're talking state-of-the-art in whenever it was 1949, I think. This guy walks in and leaves off a package or something. He's a scientist. And because of the air circulation system, and because this was one of those diseases that spreads as an aerosol, he goes home and he gets sick. So there was a bunch of guinea pigs in the basement and some in the attic of this building or the top floor of the building. And because of the air circulation system, both the populations of guinea pigs got sick, but also people got sick. There was at least one death. It was an epidemic caused by the desire to understand this mysterious, and I think to Dr. Armstrong and people like him, this fascinating disease. They were fascinated by diseases that were exceptionally lethal. And the reason was partly because they wanted to have ways of making people better from them. They didn't want Americans to die from it, but it was also that they wanted new diseases in the American arsenal that the enemy, the communists, would not have remedies for. So Q fever was a good possible thing for them to study. So yes, I mean, the answer is yes. I was shocked over and over again by the kind of cold, calculated desire to use medical knowledge to make an enemy population ill. Nick, I guess this would be a good point to have you tell the people about something called Camp Dietrich. What is Camp Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland, as it relates to this overall story that you're telling in Baseless? Camp Dietrich was a farm, and then in the Second World War, they turned it into a very large scientific campus of buildings. They worked on anthrax there and other diseases, 
and it was super top secret. The town of Frederick, Maryland, where I've been, is a quiet little town, and even though this thing was growing and employed really several thousand people, it was kept entirely secret all during World War II. And then after the war was ended, it kind of reduced its activities for a while. And then towards the end of the 40s, 48, 49, early 50, the programs began to be reactivated. And there was recommendations that we needed to increase the staffing by several hundred people. So it began to grow again. And all through the 50s, it was a place where a lot of people did very precise, kind of amazing things with germs and viruses and experimented on monkeys, on guinea pigs, rats, and in the case of the Seventh-day Adventists who were dosed with Q fever in the 50s in Operation White Coat on people. So it was a gigantic germ warfare and germ warfare defense program. And it was always described as defensive, but actually most of the activity was offensive. And there were two parts of it. One of it was the big weapons, like the weapons that the Air Force would drop. And the other was the covert action arm called the Special Operations Division. And that was funded by the CIA. And that was to find weapons that would be very hard to detect or would be in some way usable in small quantities, instead of strategically would be used as part of some confusion operation, or even an assassination. And that was a whole different group of people, and it was very hush-hush. And the most famous person who worked there was Frank Olson, who was the subject of a documentary recently on Netflix. And he's a fascinating figure. He's a guy who spent his life working on biological weapons, you know. But he then, at some point, seemingly had a change of heart. And he was dosed with a very high dose of LSD when a whole bunch of scientists were on a retreat. It was sort of an experiment gone wrong, or maybe it was a punitive experiment. It's not quite clear. But in any case, he had a terrible LSD experience, and he ended up jumping out a hotel window or being helped to jump out. It's not clear, but in any case, he died from a fall from a hotel window in the Statler Hotel in New York City. And I think it was 1954. But it was a place where people did really remarkably secret and toxic things for a long time. First it was called Cap Dietrich, and later it was elevated in status and became Fort Dietrich. And that's what it's called now by the old timers. But it's now doesn't do what it used to do. Now it's defensive. And so they still have this... BSL-4, super secret, super uh, high test facility, but it is at least ostensibly, and I think truthfully, really oriented towards defense. They want to find out who is doing bad things with germs around the world. So they're not, at this point, actively developing new biological weapons. They're just working with very, very risky diseases, which carries its own risks. It's part of something that we should be very careful about and think about very carefully before we allow it to happen. Yeah, hopefully they're doing less testing of animals at 
Camp Dietrich, what is now Fort Dietrich. Back in the late 40s and early 1950s, they were doing psychopathic level testing on animals, like the type of thing that you'd hear about serial killers doing to animals when they were children. Is there an example of this testing that is especially unsettling to you? Well, there's several. One was a test that happened. It's not the worst because the worst really are the monkeys, I think. But this was a test of brucellosis, and it was on a test of 3,000 guinea pigs out in the desert in the test facility, Dugway, way out in the southwest. So we're talking about the desert, and technicians went and put all these guinea pigs, which were in little boxes with a hole in one end, and the guinea pig was stuck with this box with its head poking out. The idea was that you wanted to keep the brucellosis from falling on the guinea pig's coat, but just to see if it infected them via the aerial route, not through contamination of its fur. So 3,000 guinea pigs are spread around this fake city, and then a plane flies overhead and drops these bombs at night. And the bombs come down, and the brucellosis germs spread all through these trenches and these little buildings and stuff, and the guinea pigs breathe this disease. There was something about the description of this surreal moment in the desert. And then the technicians would come, and they had to unbox the guinea pigs, take them back to the laboratory, and then wait for them to get sick. And there's just something so futile about the idea of trying to make 3,000 guinea pigs sick in the desert. And then, of course, they're all killed. Even the guinea pigs that didn't catch brucellosis, I know that guinea pigs are not as high on whatever totem pole of animal existences. But, you know, there's something brutalizing about doing this kind of stuff to animals every day. And I think the veterinarians, I think they really suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome is to see, you know, these plague experiments with monkeys. They would put two monkeys, one in one cage. The monkey would have been infected with plague, let's say, by poking plague germs in its nose or in its rectum. And then the other monkey would not have plague. And the question was, could the monkey with plague infect the monkey without plague if there was a barrier between them? And that was a set of experiments that were done. And then the plague experiments were done on prisoners at San Quentin as well, who were asked to, quote, volunteer, unquote. And that was in the late period of World War II and then into the later 40s. So there was just a lot of crazy stuff that happened. But the one that really got me, I think, was the scientific director of Camp Dietrich in its sort of early golden age of activity was this man who had worked on, was it guinea pig embryos? So he had injected encephalitis into the brains of guinea pig fetuses in order to infect them with polio or encephalitis or other diseases because he said that the guinea pig, when it was in your utero, was like a test tube animal. And sometimes he would then do surgery, take out the embryonic or fetus, and then he would sew up the guinea pig, and then he would do this whole thing again with the same guinea pig. So it was just sort of like this, I don't know, strange, sadistic, horrible thing. And I know that animal experiments, there are good reasons and justifications for doing things to animals and making animals sick. But 
There is no justification for any of this stuff because in the period that I'm writing about, it was all an effort to make diseases more infectious. So when you say that this monkey or this cat or dog, there was this actual shortage of cats and dogs. There were so many being used in these experiments in New York City. It is not just that they're being used to experiment upon. They're being used to passage through germs and make the actual diseases more virulent. After reading about the animal experimentation, I was thinking of asking you if there were any examples of our government doing experimentation on the general American population, but inevitably you answer that question in this book, Baseless. And one example involves the city of San Francisco and the entire Bay Area. What happened there in September of 1950? First of all, think about what time that September of 1950, the Korean War was just starting to get serious. American troops were dying. The battles were not always going well. And the idea was, can we fog an entire city, a coastal city, with a disease in order to subdue it and win over a population? So they had ships going back and forth on the coast of San Francisco. And, of course, the San Franciscos were not informed of this, but they had these nozzles that pumped out a fog of several different substances. And they were not the diseases themselves. They were simulants for the disease. So they were living creatures. They were single-celled creatures, but they were not the ones that were going to make you really sick. They were the ones that were stand-ins for that. So this one was called Serratia marqueskins, or I, I never know how to pronounce it, but the interesting feature it has was that it turned red. It glowed red in Petri dishes. So they put Petri dishes all around San Francisco, Oakland, all up and down the Bay Area. And then they had these ships pumping out this simulant, and it would float. And the thing that I found that I was kind of amazed by that I don't think anyone else had found, it's in the newspaper reports for that very week, there were these reports, why does San Francisco smell so bad? What is it? There was one that said San Francisco stinks. And they came up with all these ideas that people were cooking too many Brussels sprouts, or maybe the factories, maybe there was the weather. But it was something that happened with the several substances that they were fogging this area with that made the air actually smell bad to people. So every person in the Bay Area was participating in an experiment that he or she had not consented to. And the problem was that some of these simulants, if you're a person who has a lowered immune response or some kind of catheter or something, you get sick. So a guy actually died as a result of this. At least one person died. And there was a whole lawsuit about it. It only came out in the 70s and 80s that there had been this secret test in the 50s. And that's what my book is all about. Obviously, we need fewer secrets because if people in San Francisco had known that their city was being used as the experimental testing ground of a toxic biological agent, they would have said, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. We don't want that. And it wouldn't have happened. So it was the secrecy that enabled all of this. And that's why we've got to get on top of this problem of pervasive 
compulsive government secrecy. Very well said there. It was also pretty disgusting to read about the CIA ruining Guatemala in the name of derailing communism back then, especially because in a lot of ways, Guatemala still hasn't recovered. What happened in Guatemala in the mid-1950s? Well, <laughs> a person listening to this would think, man, they're all over the place. And the fact is, this book is. It's all over the place because it's trying to do something a little bit different than histories of the CIA or histories of secrecy and transparency or histories of germ warfare or histories of anything. I want to think about what happened in the past and understand it, but I want to do it the way you do it because you're a historian who gets up in the morning and just thinks of things. Why would you write it in chronological order when we as human beings don't think about anything in chronological order. I wrote a whole book in chronological order called Human Smoke, and I believe in it. I think it's a good way to go. But this one, I wake up in the morning, I make some coffee, or I feed the dogs, whatever, and I just write about what it is that comes to me. And Guatemala kept coming back and back and back. It's because it was the most closely followed and documented covert action project that the CIA had ever mounted. It was Wisner's, he felt that it was his capstone moment. This is the moment of his greatest triumph, a country that had a somewhat to the left of center leader. The leader is deposed, a person is imported, and it all happened deniably with the help of CIA arms at a huge radio station that was pretending to be indigenous but wasn't. Every single cable was carefully put in binders, and this was a whole sort of like a, a textbook of how to change a regime using covert action. So it was this powerful, powerful thing. And because it was so important and what Wisner thought was such a triumph, it became the kind of pattern book for other interventions over the years. And the part of it that I was interested in, because I'm interested in the question of whether the United States used these weapons in an earlier time, was how intensely the United States denied things, but also how Wisner and his colleagues decided that they would first undermine the Guatemalan government. Guatemala was a coffee is a coffee-producing country. So Guatemalan coffee was crucial to its economy. So what they wanted to do was destroy the Guatemalan economy, and the way to do that would be to somehow figure out some way to get in there and mess up Guatemalan coffee growing. And they had various plans, and one of them was to introduce this coffee borer that would burrow into the coffee beans. If you had a few coffee beans that had signs of a coffee borer, the American coffee buyers would say, oh my God, this is a contaminated shipment. And they had other plans. There was a coffee disease that they had learned about, and they thought, well, we could spread this disease, or we could spread rumors of this disease. So there were these papers that I came across in the CIA's own database, which is now fascinating and huge as a result of a landmark legal battle, but I saw these documents and it was just such a revealing way of thinking about how do we turn a country upside down? Well, we take its 
primary cash crop and we try to wreck it. We try to boycott it or change the buying patterns, you know, mess with it on international commodities markets, and also actually make the coffee beans and coffee plants themselves sick. That was the part that really, well, I want to say appalled me because it just seems so, I don't know, so dark, <laughs> so dark. Very much so. And since you just referenced it, I do want you to talk a little bit about the one happy story that you get to deliver in Baseless. What is Muckrock versus the CIA? There are a couple inspiring stories of small groups against a big group, but this was the biggest one. Muckrock is a small nonprofit that makes it easier for a person like me, just a normal citizen with no recourse to big-time connections or anything, to file a Freedom of Information request. So they're sort of a funnel through which you can send a request and it will go through Muckrock to whoever, to the Department of Homeland Security or the Air Force or the Navy or whoever you're interested in finding out things about. One of the places that they'd had very, very little success actually was the Central Intelligence Agency because that place is just famously unwilling to give up its secrets. Secrets are the product. This is what the CIA produces. It's what the CIA is a factory of secrets. Don't give them away for free. The secrets are what you've got, and the secrets are, in many cases, really disturbing. So if the CIA gives away all of its secrets, everybody will know all the crazy things they did, and then there would maybe be questions about the reason for the CIA's existence. So Muckrot had not had much success with that. And so then there was this whole thing that happened where one guy said, okay, you have a whole database of already declassified documents, and it's called the CREST database, which stands for CIA Records Search Tool, CREST. And this is this database that's just jam-packed with stuff that's sort of a flotsam and jetsam of many lawsuits and times when the CIA has been forced to reveal things. And the only way you can see this huge database of thousands and thousands of pages is by going to the National Archives in College Park and going into a special room. In the back of a room, there are four chairs, and there's these computers with air gaps, so they're not connected to anything, and there's lots of surveillance. And if you sit at those computers, you will be able to search the Crest database and then print out what you found on pieces of paper. No thumb drives or anything like that, just pieces of paper. So that's how it was. So this guy had a very brilliant idea, which was to ask for the Crest database in digital form. He said, I don't want it in paper. You don't need to do anything with it. You don't need any further declassified. With all the redactions, just give it to me as a digital object. And the CIA didn't respond to that. Or I guess they did respond to it. They said, no, we can't because it's secret. It's classified. And that doesn't make any sense because if every document, all those hundreds of thousands of documents, if they've been declassified, how can the CIA be saying that it's classified material? It isn't. They've already gone through it and whited out or blacked out all the stuff they don't want to reveal. So this guy had that response and he gave up on it. But the people at Muckrock 
saw that one of their requests was this thing, and they talked to a lawyer named Kel McClanahan. And Michael Morrissey at Muckrock and Kel McClanahan, who is a Freedom of Information lawyer in Washington, together sued the CIA and said, now wait, you can't just say no to that because we want to see the digital Crest database. All these documents that you've already been through and already sanitized is the technical word. You've sanitized all these documents. That's all clean. You can release them. Give them to us digitally. And they came up with this idea that it would be very burdensome and it would take 18 years or something like that. And the people said, that's ridiculous and that can't be true. And so then they said, no, 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 we've looked at it again. We've discovered that it's also on CD-ROM. It'll only take us six years and it'll cost you $150,000. And so then this brilliant moment happened where you've got muckrock and you've got the lawyer and now you need somebody with CIA experience. And they got this man who had gotten himself in trouble with the CIA because he'd made a Freedom of Information Act request while he was employed by the CIA for documents that were controlled by the CIA, which just caused a convulsion. And he said, are you kidding me? You could put all of these documents on an external drive that you could get from Staples for $69.95. This would take a day, maybe two days. This is nothing. This is not difficult. And at that moment, the CIA suddenly understood <laughs> that they were going to lose this lawsuit. Nobody wants to lose a lawsuit. So instead, they simply folded and announced that they were going to put the entire massive and fascinating, unbelievably rich, but heavily, heavily redacted Crest database. They were going to put the entire thing up on the internet. They were going to put it up as part of the CIA's Freedom of Information Act reading room. The CIA's own website was going to host this thing. Incredible. There's another chapter to it where between the success and the earlier failure, this one guy announced that he was going to print out everything and scan it and put it on the internet himself. So that was part of it. So there was sort of like a group of people who were all transparency advocates none of whom was particularly well-financed, going against this multi-billion dollar massive agency. And astonishingly, they won. It was just an astonishing thing. And it was crucially important to me because I was in the middle of writing one of my failed drafts, I guess you could say, of this book. And suddenly, I started getting all these hits. I started finding things that had never been there before. So it was just like the timing for me was perfect. I didn't have to go to College Park, Maryland and sit at the four terminals and be surveilled. I could just, in my own office here, I could just type in queries and I got hits and they were amazing. So I'm not sure if this was a result of you having access to Crest or not, but you made a big discovery on March 29th, 2019, with a document titled Emergence of the Intelligence Establishment. Why is this document so important? The Emergence of the Intelligence Establishment is the name of a volume published by the State Department that has a whole lot of early memos and white papers and things saying, this is why we need this new 
covert action establishment. We need people to do things that are secret and illegal, essentially. We need people to do that. We need people that are willing to do the things, the dirty, dark deeds that we have seen Russia and China and East Germany do. We need to do all of the things that they're doing. There's a tremendous amount of projection in all this. But if you're talking about the initial document, there's a folder among all the many zillions and zillions of boxes of documents from the United States State Department. There's a folder that holds the original draft written by George Kennan that says what we should be doing, why we need to start this program. He was an eloquent writer and a very smart man. And he was also, I think, had a bit of a paranoid streak. And he was very concerned that we were losing this Cold War. And that was a very new word at the time. And he came up with this description of what we needed. And what we needed was to get on a real firm foundation, a real institutionalized secret agency. Because what had happened is Italy was sort of veering towards communism. And this was in 1948. The Italian elections were maybe going to go to the communists. This horrified the Americans. So they bribed and coerced and used every trick in the book to sway the Italian press and the Italian politicians not to vote communist. And they were very happy that they'd successfully kept Italy from having a triumph of the Communist Party. But it was all in a big rush. And what George Kennan thought was it had to be put on a firm foundation. We had to get somebody in charge of it. And the guy who wanted to get in charge of it was Frank Wisner. And it's so amazing. You know, I love going to the National Archives, and I think there's something incredibly, well, it's just such a privilege to be able to say, I would like to look at this file from 1949. I'd like to see it. And they roll out a cart with boxes on it. You know, and the boxes are, usually they're gray. They hold about a thousand pages, roughly. And there's all sorts of procedures you have to go through. So you pull out the folder and you have to put a little place marker where the folder was supposed to go and you open it up and you never know what you're going to find but it's often typescript drafts survive sometimes more than the final thing because all everybody was maybe put the word out we're going to destroy this document so they would all find it in their files and destroy it but the drafts might have survived in a different file folder so in the case of this one file I was turning the pages and it's this paper it's kind of this rough draft paper. It's kind of pulpy paper with typewritten draft and cross-outs, George Kennan's rewritings. And then some of the things were places where somebody had actually kept that secret for a couple of decades, but I'm looking at it and I see the place that had been whited out. So it's just this sort of intensely intimate experience of the past, just sort of these voices and these realities of extreme behavior are just sort of floating up out of the pages. It's just a very amazing experience. Archival research is an amazing, kind of a beautiful experience. But it's also when you're dealing with unpleasant secrets or secrets that involve, you know, the deaths of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, in some cases, they're really troubling. 
experiences too. Well, it's interesting because even though these are secrets, they were things that when they were happening in the moment, they were being pointed out by our enemies, by the countries that we were going up against. Korea was saying, look, there's biological and chemical warfare going on here. China was doing some of those same things. The U.S. government denied most of these heinous acts as they were happening 70 plus years ago. What was one of the most ridiculous of these denials pertaining to the Khabarovsk trials in Russia in the waning days of 1949, and why was it so shameless? There was a period right there where you're talking about is when the Americans figured out that what they really had to do was learn from the Japanese. They'd conquered Japan, and the Japanese had run a gigantic and barbaric germ warfare development program in China, and they had used, as their experimental subjects, they had used some animals, horses and monkeys and things, but they'd also used Chinese prisoners of war, and in some cases, Russian prisoners of war, and maybe American prisoners of war, although that has not been proven. So the Americans then having taken over that whole Chinese military establishment thought, all right, now we are in control of this. And one of the spoils of war will be that we will learn all of the medical results, all of the amazing injections and passaging through various human prisoners that those Japanese scientists did. We will get all that. And so they gradually kind of Step by step, they interviewed this man named Ishii and his other lieutenants, and they won over their trust. And the Japanese scientist who had first said, oh, no, we never did anything with people, and we never actually got very far. It was all defensive. and It was just very defensive. Turned out that after a while, especially once they were offered money <laughs> and kind of bought off and offered protection from war crimes prosecution, also just as important. I mean, these guys would have been tried as war criminals. They were so, no, we're not, we're going to keep you. We're going to, you're going to be safe from any war crimes prosecution. And we're going to treat you well. You're going to be favored people. You're going to be able to start your blood bank company, whatever it is. So the Americans then took on all of this research, all of this knowledge and they started to sift through it. And at the same time, the Russians got wind of it because they had captured some of these same guys. And they said, these people are war criminals. They did terrible things to people. It was absolutely in violation of the laws of war and they should be tried. And they said to the Americans who were running Japan, General MacArthur and his intelligence aides, they said, give us these war criminals. We are having a big trial in Khabarovsk. We're going to try all the war criminals who did these horrible things with people, human subject experimentation, barbaric, horrifying. It's appalling to even read the accounts of these things. And the Americans said, we don't know where these scientists are. We have no idea. We don't know where Ishii is. He's disappeared. They hid them. They hid them from this trial. And the trial went on, and it was actually an incredibly revealing set of transcripts of the testimony of these various Japanese scientists 
many of whom were quite chagrined and penitent about what they'd done. They said, you know, I deeply regret both that I did these things and that I involved other young Japanese soldiers in this activity. They apologized for it. They felt horrible about it. It was all published as a book by the Russians. And the Americans steadfastly said, no, it's not happening. They never did any experiments on humans. They never did offensive biological work. It was all just an amazingly bold denial. These kinds of denials, there's sort of a ritual aspect to it where they say these charges are groundless or baseless or these are unfounded charges and we reject them unequivocally. They make these big statements and the, sometimes the bigger the statement, the more likely it is that actually the whole thing is absolutely true. I guess now would be a good time to ask you what Operation Paperclip was. Annie Jacobson wrote a great book about Operation Paperclip, and there's some other books about it. But the important thing is that you have, after World War II, America has sort of inherited the entire world. And there are all sorts of American scientists who have been caught up in the war effort. And so what they did was go around and interview the war scientists, in Germany especially and in Japan, but everywhere, and they would try to bring back to the United States any sort of person who had a special competence. So the person who figured out how to fly those rockets, the German rocket scientists came to the United States under Operation Paperclip. And the German germ warriors who had figured out how to infect people in certain ways and propagate certain germs given deals by the Americans Paperclip was a satanic underground railroad of war science that allowed people who had done really hideous things in Germany and in some cases in Japan to come to the United States and have flourishing careers until sometimes they were outed later when people would say, wait a second, this guy had been in charge of terrible experiments where people were frozen or deprived of oxygen or starved. No, we can't have this man running a department at a university. This is unacceptable. But Paperclip was one of Frank Wisner's projects. It was what he was doing, in fact, before he was moved over to the CIA. He was in charge of this sort of State Department, interdepartmental group that was State War Navy Coordinating Committee that helped all these people with special competences and backgrounds in unconventional warfare to escape prosecution for war crimes and come to the United States, in some cases. Nick, how complicit was Harry S. Truman, the president who told it like it is? How complicit was he with some of the shady stuff being plotted and executed in the late 40s and early 1950s? Well, I'm sorry to say that although Harry Truman could be charming, was a very secretive man who had many sides to him, and he knew about these programs and projects and approved them. There's no question that he wanted the this certain department of the CIA to do sneaky things in communist countries. He was absolutely aware of it because there's records of him recommending it. Late in life, once there were all these revelations of all the 
crazy, sneaky things the CIA had been doing, not just in the Truman administration, but under Eisenhower and Kennedy. He wrote this piece, this op-ed piece saying, I had no idea when I started the CIA that it would turn into this Frankenstein's monster of intervention. Not true. He was absolutely on it. He wanted to have a secret private army of people creating mayhem and dethroning people. He was a real deep anti-communist to the core. And he gave one speech after another about how it was important to crush the communist conspiracy in this country. So he was very much aware of it, just as he was aware ahead of the dropping of the atomic bomb, Harry Truman knew that the Japanese emperor had wanted to surrender. It's in his diary. He said, Churchill told me that Emperor Hirohito wants to surrender. This was something he knew, and yet he went ahead and allowed the atomic bombing of Japan to take place several weeks later. So this is a guy who was, although affable, kind of man of the people, you know, and he former haberdasher and all that, he was a very deeply, deeply, deeply destructive man and set in motion so many things that we're still dealing with now. That's what's so hard to take. Incidentally, in his letters to his wife, he was a tremendous racist, used the N-word all the time, tremendous bigot, anti-Semitic, very objectionable that way in his speech, but in his action where it really means something, he set in motion agencies and actions that we are dealing with right now. They can be traced directly back to Harry Truman. What role did the breakfast cereal maker General Mills, they of Cheerios fame, play with military operations during World War II and also in the early 1950s? General Mills was a big company and patriotic, and they worked on some pigeon bomb targeting. Uh, they had a pigeon that would be in the nose cone of a bomb. and They did some bizarre experiments during World War II. General Mills became completely committed to the anti-communist effort. I think that the CEO of the company and the head of publicity were all also in contact with the CIA. And one of the things that they did was they had an entire department, I think it was called General Mills Aerospace Technologies or something like that. But they basically made balloons, high altitude balloons, small balloons, big balloons. They had genius balloon makers. And they had this whole floor, these enormous long balloons that stretched out over a table and they filled them with hydrogen and stuff. And the balloons had different kinds of payloads, and some of them listened for atomic explosions. Some of them carried cameras and floated across enemy countries and took pictures. And the one that I wanted to write about and did write about was the one that the gondola of this balloon, this General Mills balloon. Okay, think about this. General Mills is a company that harvests beautiful grains of wheat and grinds them up and makes them into Cheerios and other good stuff, right? But they are so committed to the anti-communist cause that they are going to want to make it very difficult for the Russians to harvest their wheat. So that they do is they study the Japanese prototypes of balloons. The Japanese were brilliant balloon makers. 
and they reverse engineered everything and they came up with a balloon that would carry crop disease in its gondola with a little heating element because it's going to be very high it's going to be miles up in the air and they came up with a design it was a styrofoam gondola that would evade radar because it would be styrofoam and it would hold these canisters of spores that would there were two possibilities initially one would be pellets that would poison pigs would cause a terrible pig disease and one was going to sicken the wheat plants and rye plants in the Soviet Union so this was the plan so bizarrely enough the company that made Cheerios wanted to starve out the Soviet Union it's just so strange it's just so bizarre really it's a pretty sick irony also it's just, why, why? Of course, part of it is the federal government is saying, you guys are good at grinding stuff up. So they also did research that was fed into anthrax making because they, anthrax has to be in a very, very tiny, fine powder in order to go deep in the lungs. So General Mills was doing all kinds of contract research for the government. So it was essentially a very lucrative business stream, but it was also something that the senior executives of the company responded to, and they thought, this is our patriotic duty. It's also kind of exciting because all these guys come on, they, we have meetings, and we talk about big plans and how to vanquish the communist menace, and we're going to be doing this stuff. We're going to be making balloons. We're going to be figuring out how to grind stuff up and really fine and make people really sick, and it's going to be exciting, and they did this, and it was also propaganda balloons as well. So it was all just um, disappointing. And that's the thing is this battle that I had with myself and why I wrote it as a diary is it makes me sad to learn these things about this great country. We've done so many amazing things, so many discoveries, so many beautiful songs, so many incredible you know, TV shows and funny stuff and beautiful parks and you know, just endless, incredible triumphs of human ingenuity and stuff and I don't know part of the battle is how do you digest the fact that at the same time all that great stuff was going on the central figures in the federal government were just hell-bent on coming up with all kinds of exotic weapons and trying to figure out how to use them as you just mentioned, this book was written in the form of a two-plus-month diary that started in March of 2019, ended in May of 2019, and I'm with you. Like, even reading this book, the material is so emotionally and psychologically draining. By the time I got to the end of it, I was happy to have been enlightened on a lot of these things, but also depressed at the same time. Obviously, this book was years in the making beyond these two-plus months, but just how much of a toll did this two-plus months take on you? Um, it was bad. It was bad. But it was made better by the fact, oddly enough, that just the day before I started writing the book as a diary, as opposed to before I'd tried it writing it different ways and failed, we got these two rescue dogs from the Bangor Humane Society, and they were middle-aged dachshunds. They were so nervous, and it took a while, and then they began to trust us. But anyway, these dogs were, uh, 
they were just so defenseless and so lovable that my wife and I, we let them sleep in our bed. And because they arrived at the same time, this strange self-assignment arrived of my writing the book as a diary, they lived through it with me. And I would sometimes just come up describing some insane plan for killing that the United States was working on. And I described that I would just lie in bed and I would reach my hand out and put my hand on the sort of bony, warm head of this dog. This dog named Cedric. We had two dogs. And there was something about feeling this living creature and the trustingness and vulnerability and the devotion of this creature and the love that the creature had. I mean, this is just its so powerful and healing. So my wife who is an incredibly loving person and who put up with an awful lot of horrible talk about germ warfare as I was writing this, was a huge reason I got through it. And our children are grown, and I would talk to them on the phone, and that was a good thing. But really, also, these dogs, they helped me through it. Our cat, too. But, you know, it's just sort of, if you're writing about the deaths of thousands of experimental animals and of people, too, in wars and insurgencies and all that, there's just something about having right near at hand a life that is dependent on you and is innocent and trusting and just looks at you with these eyes of saying, I'm here. So I wrote about those dogs and about living life because I think that life is good. I mean, it's not a cliche. It's just something genuinely true. It's Life is beautiful and good. And most of us, most of the time, are genuinely kind, considerate people. It's just that there are these governmental paroxysms of hostility that lead to wars and larger militarized manifestations that somehow should not be thought of as basic to the human experiment. Human beings are basically very social, We like to talk, we like to laugh, we like to sing and dance, have a good time, ride bicycles, look at the clouds, and (laughs) drive around in comfortable cars. I mean, basically, we want to get along. And the appetite for other things, you know, borders that are militarized and people taking over other things, that is an aberration, I think. So it's good to be reminded of that. And what I tried to do was remind readers of that along the way. Yes, you are reading about things that are very painful, but A, you're reading about them a long time ago. They were a long time ago, and you're, you're now. So now what do you have to do? You have to work to open up the secrets and be nice, be considerate, be open to the possibility that other countries are not necessarily hell-bent on your destruction, but that we can all get along. So That was what I was hoping for, was to create a kind of humility in the reader, to say, yeah, we really screwed up badly in the past. We worked on nerve gases that you would not believe. We worked on every kind of disease that you can imagine in order to kill people. So we don't have, in some cases, our pride is unjustified. That makes us more humble, and that might make us better world citizens.
Very well said there, and I agree with the demand that you make at the end of this book that every U.S. government document that's more than 50 years old should be released in full right now with no redactions. He is Nicholson Baker, the award-winning author of 10 novels and numerous works of nonfiction. That includes his newest book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Freedom of Information Act. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Nick, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Really enjoyed both of these. Thank you, Trey. It was a great time talking to you. Thank you.